Okay, well, good morning. Good morning. Just grab your attention, please, just for a moment. Um, we'll just bring our conversations to a close. Um, it's certainly good to be here this morning. It wasn't so good to be here yesterday evening at 6 p.m. The woes of being a Scotland fan. Our, uh, our optimism extinguished once again. But uh, England were very good. So well done to England. <laughs> oh, it's so hard to say. I found that so difficult. Anyway, it's the first, first time that Lindsay and I have been here for a full Alder Road experience since the day that we first visited just over two years ago. Um, so it's great to be back um, and here for the whole service. Um, so thank you so much for having us. Uh, a lot has changed in that two years. Uh, there's now three of us. Annabelle was born three weeks ago. Um, I'm now on staff here at Gateway, so I spend a lot of time around here, even though I'm not here on Sundays, I'm at 5.02, usually up on Ashley Road. Um, so, last week we took a break from Who is Jesus, uh, where Dr. Luke is taking us through uh, his gospel and his sequel in Acts, um, and we are uh, joining back up with that again uh, today. But last week, Michael Otts was with us. If you didn't hear it, do get online and listen to it. He was talking about Jesus as well, uh, and he was looking at the story of Jesus uh, and the Samaritan uh, woman at the well. Uh, do get uh, online and listen to that if you've not listened to it yet. Let me just remind you of where we're at in the story. It's Passover season. Jesus has taken a journey from Galilee, Galilee of over 100 miles uh, south with his followers, and he's arrived in Jerusalem on the Monday, and uh, we're about to join him on the Tuesday. On the Monday when he came uh, into Jerusalem, a red carpet was laid out in the form of palm branches, and he went in as king. The crowd who had come with him, mostly from Galilee, were proclaiming him as king. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But this entry as a king caused huge controversy amongst the religious elites. Blasphemy, they said. This can't be the king of kings. And they wanted to put him to death. By Friday, they would have their way. And on Friday, Jesus would have a very different entry into Jerusalem. He would come in through a different gate, and he would come in as a servant and not as a king. He came in as the Lion of Judah on Monday, and he would come in as the Lamb of God on Friday. So that's where we're at. We're between those two entries. The whole of Jerusalem is asking, who is this Jesus? Could he really be the promised Messiah, the king? Could this really be him? The answer doesn't only have huge implications for first century Israel. It has huge implications for every generation of every nation on the planet. And it has huge implications for us today as well. This morning we're in chapter 20, verses 20 to 40. And Jesus is continuing to be challenged by these power-hungry authorities these religious elites. Two of these groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, have infiltrated the crowd with spies. And so they're listening into Jesus uh, in amongst this crowd, and they've pre-engineered questions to trip this king up 
as the Passover frenzy uh, continues. They want to discredit his authority, and they want to try and show the Roman authorities that he's a danger to them as well. So our first of the two tricky questions uh, comes uh, from the Pharisees. So let's turn there. So chapter 20 in Luke, uh, verse 20, and we'll go through to verse 26 just now, and then we'll join it up again for the second question. It's in page 619 in the Bibles provided. Verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar, is it not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we get to come before it and humbly lay ourselves down and listen to what it is that you have to say to us today. God, we open up our hearts and we say, God, come speak. Speak to us in your power. Speak to us by your spirit. Change our hearts. Make us more like you. Help us to see more of this Jesus, who he really is. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. At university, I was set a group exercise um, as part of our course in crisis PR. We were uh, told that we were going to be employees of the oil and gas company Shell. And all that we were told was that we'd be an employee, we'd be PR employees for them, and that we'd get an announcement at 5 p.m. on the Tuesday telling us that something has happened. That's all we had. So our group gathered together and we waited. Eventually we got an email, and in that email it said, there's been an explosion. An explosion on an oil rig out in the North Sea. We've lost contact with the crew. More to follow. We had to prepare for a press conference the next morning at 9 a.m., and the journalist students had to also prepare to grill us. So all night we're preparing, thinking of just any question that they could possibly ask us. And we kept getting uh, information fed through to us. And there was someone pretending to be the CEO of the company as well. So he would uh, send stuff to us, and we would receive that. And one of the things that he said was that you must not concede that we will at any point stop the operation of the other rigs. We cannot afford to do that. So we've got that pressure coming from him. Okay? And we go into, the, into this uh, press conference in the morning. First of all, we're a bit late because we're putting our press pack together and we're in a frenzy and we thought we knew what we were doing and we didn't. So anyway, we go in and um, at the worst start you could have, journalists are already annoyed. And we sit down. I am the spokesperson by 10 a.m. I deeply regretted that. Um, 
And we, we, we started to listen to some of the questions. There was one journalist who caused us lots of problems. She was this feisty Irish girl. And she'd managed to get a hold of a document that I think she'd been given by her journalist teacher to make it difficult for us. And it was on this document, it said that we hadn't properly done our checks on the rigs and that it's quite possible that this explosion had happened because we hadn't done these checks. So she asked this question. She said, it seems that the issue causing the malfunction could have been stopped by these checks being completed properly. Have you suspended operations on the other rigs until you can be sure that workers are safe? Um, well, uh, we're continuing to monitor the situation closely and we'll uh, give you any more information in due course. That was my pat answer, which she did not like. She continued and she continued and she continued. And I tried to deflect attention to other journalists. Please, somebody else asking me a question. But she kept coming back to the same question, to the same question, to the same question. We would have failed had we said, oh, we're going to stop operations on the other rigs because we had to do what our boss, he said. But equally, she wanted this story that would rip us apart if it was true. I was stuck between a rock and a hard place, and I really just wanted a trapdoor to open and disappear. This journalist student was getting her story out of me at all costs. Now, for, for me, thankfully, that was just an exercise. But like that Irish student who was trying to trip me up to pursue her own agenda, the Pharisees are trying to pick, uh, trip Jesus up here. Notice the Pharisees' questions about tax is softened, softened at the beginning by flattery. It's sneaky. They're trying to be nice. It is like the media, isn't it? They're trying to be nice, but, but, but really it's actually quite inflammatory. Without Luke's explanation, it could seem innocent and genuine. Just a, just a question. But when we look at who it is and where it was and when it was asked, it's hugely inflammatory. A few weeks ago, I was in a cafe and I was uh, chatting to this, got chatting to this bloke. And he asked me a question that's quite a common question but that I get asked when people find out that I'm from Glasgow. Oh, oh, you're from Glasgow. Are you a Rangers or Celtic? And it's a perfectly innocent question. It's, an, it's a good question. Um, but if I was asked that question, not in a nice English cafe down here on our English Riviera, but in the east end of Glasgow on a Friday night, the way that I would have to answer that question would depend on whether I went home in a taxi or an ambulance. <laughs> the context in which this question is being asked is hugely aggressive. To ask a teacher about Roman tax in front of the Roman officials and a Jewish crowd is an easy way to cause trouble. Taxis are obviously hugely unpopular uh, for, the Jewish, for the Jews in that society, so it's, it doesn't take much to imagine how much they hated to give to Rome, who were this power over them and, the, and a shackle to them. They wanted to be this free nation. They wanted to be the Israel that they'd been promised to be in the, in the Old Testament. They wanted a Messiah to come and save them. And so to talk about anything that reminds them 
that they are not what they want to be, but they are under Roman rule, uh, rule is highly offensive. So actually, what is more offensive by this tax is not how much they had to pay, but actually what is on the coins. A Tiberian denarius reads, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And on the reverse, the mother of Augustus, Livia, is portrayed as an incarnation of the goddess of peace, along with the inscription, high priest. You couldn't get much more offensive to a Jew whose first commandment from God was to have no other gods but me. It was a massively offensive thing for them to have to pay this tax with that coin. In fact, Jews would have, as much as possible, would have coins that had nothing on them. There'd be no uh, kind of images at all. So the crowd is waiting, and they are hoping that Jesus' answer will stand up to these Romans. Come on, Jesus, stand up to them. Show them who you are. But if he did, the Roman authorities would immediately arrest him, and the Pharisees would win. But if he supported the Roman tax, the crowd would be disillusioned. Savior king? You're not a savior king. You won't even stand up to the Romans. How can you be our king, the king of kings? Jesus looks to be stuck. His answer, however, silences everyone. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Jesus said to to pay the tax and to honor God as God. He somehow manages to, to answer both questions and silences the crowd. The Bible desc- uh, describes government as the temporary institutions in which God puts in place to maintain order until Jesus returns to really bring the, the governi- government that is the government that can bring perfect peace, that can bring perfect order. That is the perfect government. So Jesus isn't scared of the Romans. He later says to Pontius Pilate, the Roman prefect of Judea, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. He's not scared of the Romans. But at the same time, he is saying that you should honor the government, pay your taxes. Now, it would be pretty unwise of us to develop a whole theology of politics uh, here in this one verse, but it does tell us that we, need to not, uh, we don't need to choose between government and God. There is a way in which we can honor and serve God and honor our obligations to the government. So what does that mean for us? Well, it tells us that we should be willing to humbly Uh, bow uh, before God, but we also should be willing to submit to government, to pray for and honor our society's leaders in a way that reveals our trust in the King of Kings to appoint leaders, but also that he will return, and no matter how bad it gets for us here, he will return and bring about perfect justice, perfect peace. Yes, we should stand up for truth and justice. We should oppose things that uh, we uh, think are unjust. But 
we mustn't needlessly subvert government. We should do as we uh, are asked to do, so as long as it doesn't oppose who we are according to God's word. So as, as Christians, we should be distinct from the apathetic reaction uh, of some to unjust, unjust behavior amongst governments. We should use our free speech well. We should use our democratic rights well. We should be thinking about issues and engaging in issues. So we mustn't be apathetic. But on the other hand, we also need to be distinct from those who have a reactionism and a often an emotional reactionism and often an overreaction that doesn't have in mind the, the sovereignty of God over all things and that one day he will return to bring about perfect peace. So we mustn't react in such a way that it doesn't show people around us that we trust in God. We do trust them. So today, amongst the uncertainty of Brexit, Trump, ISIS, economic woes, North Korean aggression, and any other issue that comes up, we can be certain of this, that Jesus is the King of Kings, appointing all temporary governments, and he will return as King of Kings to perfectly govern over all creation. So who is Jesus? He's the King of today and forever. But the Pharisees weren't the only ones trying to catch out Jesus. The Sadducees were there too. Let's read on from uh, verse 27. So we're back in uh, page 619 in the Bibles that have been provided. And we're in chapter 20, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses for, uh, wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the women also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given to marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the, the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage above the bush, about the bush, where he calls the Lord of God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now I'm sorry if you've heard this before. It's a little bit cheesy. But we know who the Sadducees are because they were sad, you see. They did not believe in the resurrection, and that made them sad, you see. They were highly educated aristocrats who wanted to remain distinctly Jewish while rejecting some of the central beliefs of what it was to be a Jew. A little like maybe a liberal bishop 
today wants to be a Christian, remain distinctly Christian, but at the same time deny the miraculous in the Gospels. Unlike Pharisees with with this fundamentalist approach that they had, the Sadducees had a very liberal approach. They regarded anything miraculous, anything that wasn't, couldn't be easily explained as something that can't be true. It can't be real. It can't be true. And there are a lot of people like that today. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. It's the idea that the, in this progressive age, there are no real... Um, there's nothing really miraculous that can't be explained by where we have got to at this point in time. So during modernism, that was science, and now um, the arguments have shifted slightly, and uh, people are, are talking about all sorts of different issues in which they think, oh, no, the, the, the gospel can't be true because we believe this or we believe that. So as, as society progresses, it's the idea that whatever you believe then has put to shame everything in the, in the past. And what they don't, re- they don't remember is that actually as you look back through the past, many of the beliefs that we have today have already been believed by previous generations in different cultures. And actually the next generation will look back at this generation and say, oh, you guys were fools. You didn't know anything. And so again, they'll change what they believe the Bible says. They try and twist it and make it fit to their own agenda. There is nothing new under the sun, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. In verse 39, we see that the Pharisees and the rest of the scribes do not agree with the position of the Sadducees. So you've got this really interesting mix in the crowd now, don't you? So in this bustling crowd right in the middle of of Jerusalem at Passover season where Jews have come from all over the country and beyond to be here. You've got this crowd who are following Jesus and have seen the miraculous going on around him and they go, wow, this guy must be king of kings. We've laid down our red carpet with the palms and we say, yes, he's king of kings. He's Messiah. But then you also have this other crowd of uh, other group have infiltrated the crowd, the Pharisees, and they say, yeah, well, we believe in a Messiah, but we don't think this guy's the Messiah. In fact, we think he's, that this is blasphemy and that he needs to uh, rebuke his followers. Otherwise, uh, he's on, on his way to a death penalty. And uh, now we've got uh, these Roman authorities looking on, and they're trying to work out, can we trust this guy, Jesus? Is he going to start an uprising? Should we be worried about this? And then you've also got the Sadducees. The Sadducees are this other religious group, religious group of elites who don't believe in this resurrection to new life, and they're trying to trip him up with theology. So it's a real interesting mix at a very key time of the year. And everyone's come together, and the question on their lips is, can we trust this Jesus? Who is it that we can trust as having authority to interpret Scripture faithfully? Is it these super-educated Sadducees who explain the miraculous away? Is it the Pharisees and the other scribes? Or is it Jesus, who as far as the crowd can tell, he seems to walk in the power of God? 
So the Sadducees ask a question that's designed to prove to the crowds that the law says that the resurrection cannot be true. And so therefore, Jesus is contradicting Moses and the law, which is a death sentence to any teacher in Judaism. They argue that if according to the law, this woman can rightfully marry and then be widowed and remarry and do the whole same process again so that she has seven different husbands and then she goes to heaven and she gets to heaven and she's got her seven husbands before her. Who on earth is she going to choose to be her husband? She can't have seven husbands. That would be carnage. What's she going to do? Take turns? So they're saying, look, this cannot be true, this resurrection life, because that would just be chaos. And God's not a God of chaos. And it seems like Moses has asked, us, asked this woman to do this. And, and so if she's asked her to do this, then who are we to question it? There mustn't be any resurrection of new life. Jesus responds, quoting Exodus 3, where God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, the, the bush that was burning, but wasn't burning, but was burning, but wasn't burning. You know the bush, right? The bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. There, Moses himself called God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, at that time, where were they? Dead, right? But he talks about them in the present tense. So Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Moses believed in the resurrection because he talks about them in the present tense, as in they are with the living God. They are present with the living God. They, they still exist. They didn't just die and that was it for them. There is resurrection to new life. He is the God of the living. And these three, representing the nation of Israel, are shown to be alive alive with God. But what would happen to someone like the widow? Who's, whose wife would the widow be? Let's answer the question. Well, Jesus answers it for us and he says, no one, because there's going to be no marriage in heaven. Ah, huh. that seems a little sad, doesn't it? Maybe don't answer that question. <laughs> we, won't, we won't ask you to put up hands. It could be a little bit awkward. The Bible portrays marriage as good. And right at the beginning, in Genesis 2, 24, it says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Proverbs eighteen twenty two, it says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. But although marriage is one of many relationships that are a good gift from God, they're only to be enjoyed, this one is only to be enjoyed for a short time, not for eternity. In heaven, there will be no marriage. Well, that's not actually true. There will be one marriage. And that marriage is between Jesus and his church. It says in Ephesians 5, Love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The model for marriage now is not what our culture says marriage should be. It is Jesus and the church. 
self-sacrificing relationships, not relationships that are set up for self-fulfillment, but relationships that model the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Marriages point forward to the closeness that Jesus will have with his church for the rest of time, where we'll enjoy perfect union with God. We'll, we'll no longer need marriage to point forward to that marriage because that marriage will already be complete. It will be there. It will be enjoyed in its fullness. It will be so good that we will never, ever wish or even think, oh, I really wish I was still married to my husband or my wife on the earth. You'll never even stop and think, hey, I, I'd like to be married to George Clooney or Jennifer Anson. You're never going to think that again, if you've ever thought that. <laughs> or whoever you thought it about. You're going to be completely fulfilled by this one marriage between Jesus and the church as part of the church. It can be tempting to put all of our hope into relationships, can't it? Christians can be as guilty as anyone dreaming of a man or a woman who will fulfill your every need. Now, as wonderful as a gift as marriage is, the only relationship that will ever truly satisfy is that relationship with God that we can have because Jesus won it for us on the Friday on the cross. Don't make any person that you love or any person that you hope to meet your king. They can never fulfill that role. They will only let you down. Only Jesus can fulfill that role. I was chatting to a friend about this recently, and uh, we looked back at our late teens, and we realized that we were sold a sham. <laughs> As Christians, we thought, you know what? We just got to meet this, uh, this girl that's waiting for us. Um, we would have our own girl, just to clarify there. Um, and they'd probably be Northern Irish, blonde hair, and, they, and we'll be happy for the rest of our lives as soon as we meet this girl. It's just not true. Some people say, I was made complete when I met you. That sounds great, but it's, again, it's just not true. Jesus was the most complete and joyful person to ever walk on the planet. Was he married? No. If you're single, I want to encourage you this morning that it can be easy to look at family life, it can be easy to look at other marriages and think, oh, that's where happiness exists. And sometimes in the church we portray it like that. And it's not true. The only place you can be truly happy is in God. It is important not to be alone, but singleness does not mean alone. We are blessed with all kinds of relationships, but the one that makes us truly happy is the one we have with God. And it's to be lived out in the community of God. Jewish culture is very, in Jewish culture, it's very important um, to continue the family line. Without sons, you couldn't have land. 
And without land, you couldn't have prosperity. It was their daily bread at stake. But Jesus is saying that in the new creation, there's no longer a need for marriage to procreate because the number of sons in God will be made complete. Now, you might think, oh, that's a bit sexist. What about the daughters of God? Well, this language about sons of God is very deliberate. It's really good news for all of us here that you're called sons of God, male and female. No matter where you're from, no matter what you've done, if you put your trust in God, you put your trust in Jesus, you will be declared as a son of God, one of these sons of God. Why is that important? Because it means that you will inherit what Jesus has won for you on the cross. The inheritance is yours. Put your trust in Jesus and you will have the full inheritance. Whether you're male, female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, the full inheritance has been won for you by Jesus Christ. And he will return one day. And when you are brought into the arms of God when you come together as, a, as the bride of Christ and we have that wedding banquet, there we will discover the fullness of what it means to receive the inheritance. Almost three weeks ago, like I said earlier, I became a dad to wee Annabelle Caris. Now, before she was born, it all felt a bit surreal. Just didn't really quite feel like it was happening. I was getting ready for it, I was excited. But until she was there, it just didn't, didn't quite feel real. This growing person was inside of Lindsay, I could see that in the womb, but there was still a detachment. The moment that uh, she was born, though, wow, when I first heard that cry, I was blown away. Now, I can't really, I need to watch here. I can't really talk about this too much. It'll be a mess. And I discovered in that moment that uh, it's no longer true that there's only three things that can make me cry. It used to be that the only things that can make me cry were God, Lindsay, and uh, sporting moments. Embarrassing. <laughs> it's true. Uh, now there's a fourth, and it's we Annabelle who can make me cry. So I've got these four things. But another thing that I discovered when, uh, since having Annabelle is this, that it is very easy to make your kids your life. I get it now. I get it now. I get why people are tempted to make kids they're the king of their life. Because it's so rewarding. You have such love for them. You, it, it could be so easy for us just to make Annabelle our, the king of our house. We'll do everything around Annabelle. But actually, if we do that, we're going to put undue expectation on her. We're going to uh, drift apart as a couple. When she leaves home, and if she has any sibling, other siblings, and they leave home, our relationship would probably be in danger because we'd have nothing to talk about when she left. We cannot make our relationships of any kind, even the best kind, our king. We mustn't do that. Our relationships must always 
come second to the relationship that we have with God. We need to look to him and not be consumed by these other relationships. Now, if Jesus is on the throne of our lives, our true king will be better husbands, will be better wives, will be better mothers, better friends, better colleagues, better church members, because we're looking to Jesus first. To be like Jesus in our relationships, we need to submit to him. We need to lay down our palm branches and declare him as king and welcome him into our hearts. Resurrection life is available right now where you are. And he's saying to you this, I am the bridegroom and I am all you need. I am all that you could ever hope for. I love you. I pursued you. I left my Father in heaven to hold fast to you. I died for you. I delight in you. You are my treasured possession, and I will share my inheritance with you. On the Friday, he would die for you. On the Sunday, he would rise again from the dead and prove that this resurrection life is true, and there would be many witnesses, and it would be written down for us. And on Sundays here in Poole, in Dorset, in 2017, we'd have celebrations because Sunday is a day of resurrection life. And every week we'd get together and we'd sing praises to his name and we'd, we'd go and uh, uh, listen to his word and, and we'd, we'd want to just bask in his presence together. Is that your desire? Do you want to be there tonight? Because we're together as a community celebrating as that resurrected group of believers who love Jesus, who are looking forward to the day when he will return and take us home and will know what it means to be his bride in all its fullness. What do these two tricky questions tell us about who Jesus is? They tell us that Jesus is king. We can trust Jesus to be king today and forever. We can trust him to put in place government. And no matter how bad it gets, he will return to govern in the future with an eternal and perfect peace. We can trust Jesus as the king who has given us new life to raise us from the dead, just like Jesus was raised five days after this question from the Sadducees. He has given us new birth that will last forever, raising us from the dead and offering us an imperishable inheritance in the new creation. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so, so much for your word. We, we love you. We thank you that it's been written down for us, what Jesus said and how he interacted with these crowds. And Lord, we thank you so much that it's true that, that Jesus on the Friday, that was the Tuesday, but on the Friday you, you died in our place. You came as a servant. You came as the Lamb of God. The King was willing to become the servant. The Lion was willing to become the Lamb. And on the, on the Sunday, you rose again from the dead. And on that day, we, we, we can look to it and know that, Jesus, we too will be raised from the dead when you return and, and, and you reclaim this whole place for yourself and you bring perfect peace. And oh Lord, we thank you so much. Come now as we, as we seek to worship you. Would you reveal yourself in all your glory through your spirit? Come into our hearts as we worship together. Come into our hearts, Lord, we pray as we have fellowship together at the end and enjoy what it means to be the community of God. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Should we stand? worship first and then in a few moments we'll come and we'll we'll take communion we'll pray together and we'll think about some of the things that Ian's been saying to us but let's just come and kind of start where we left off at the end of worship and just be in God's presence and say Holy Spirit would you come would you come amongst us now Lord we thank you that uh, we see so much of your son in this world but so often we just marginalize it Lord, we want to recognize you as King and as resurrection. Lord, as the one who has died so that we can be raised again to life and life with you. So Lord, would you come by your spirit now as we worship? Would you just begin to open our hearts to just to, to cry out to you as Holy One? Lord, would you just come amongst us now? Lord, let your spirit flow. Praise you, Lord Jesus.